0: Thank you. Hey, everybody, and a welcome to this week's episode of the Plucking Up podcast, which also happens to be the last episode of season seven of our show. I'll be giving you a little bit more behind the scenes of what we are going to be doing during our season break, but honestly, I am so excited about this week's conversation that we are just going to dive right in. This is a juicy one because we really talk a lot about plucking up, about the impact that it can have on us, about the gift that is waiting for us and oftentimes others when we do the hard and courageous work of literally just naming our pluck-ups and our mistakes as such. It is such an act of courage. It is an act of vulnerability, and I am just so grateful for this conversation with our guest this week Eliza Van Court. Eliza Van Court is a number 1 best-selling author. She is a renowned speaker, she's a top podcaster and a sought-after consultant. She utilizes her academic experience and decades as an acting instructor to transform lives. She has a really traumatic childhood background that we touched on briefly on the show that I know she dives into in her most recent book, A Woman's Guide to Claiming Space. Without further ado, my conversation with our guest Eliza Van Court. Well, hi Eliza. Thank you so much for being on the Plucking Up podcast. We are really excited to get to know you and learn from you today.
1: Well, I'm really excited to be here. Thank you so much for having me. So
0: tell us a little bit about your story. Tell us about where you come from, your family of origin, kind of your, your childhood. We're interested in understanding how you found yourself or how you got to this place in life that you are. And we'd love to um, go as far back in your story as you would be willing to take us.
1: Sure. Well, um, I actually started out life in a really lovely way. Mm -hmm. I had a mom who was absolutely fantastic by all accounts. But when I was four and a half, she became paranoid schizophrenic. Mm. And she ended up kidnapping me three times, taking me across the country by truck, from truck stop to truck stop, from New York to California hitchhiking. And, um, what happened on that trip made me really start to conflate invisibility with safety. Mm-hmm. I felt, yeah. yeah. So I felt like if I could just be invisible, yeah. I would be safe. Yeah. And that was the mm-hmm. beginning of a very, very long journey to sort mm-hmm. of step into who I wanted to be, especially because, you know, society tells little girls to be cute and quiet and invisible in many ways. Yeah. And so if you're starting your life striving to be invisible, um, you know, it can be a lifelong struggle.
0: Yeah. Will you tell us a little bit more about how did your attempt to become invisible, how did that manifest in your life throughout, let's say, starting in maybe like middle school or high school? I'd love to just kind of hear more about what that looked like for you.
1: Well, I think actually by then I had started to discover theater, um, which was a big thing for me, even though that's not what Mm. I went to school for. But um, when I was little, I just didn't want to talk to anybody. I didn't have any friends. I'm going to go back a little bit. You know, I I used to, I had this long curtain of hair and I would hide behind it Mm. and um, color. And I I desperate, I was an extrovert, you know, I was born an extrovert. So I wanted to be talking to people, but I was too scared to talk to anyone. And um I actually still remember like a very pivotal moment for me. I was alone on the playground playing on the swings, wishing a friend would come over. I actually write about this in my book. And these two young girls came over to me, third graders, and said, oh, you're by yourself. And we were wondering if you'd like to play with us.
0: Oh, I'm going to cry. I have, no, I have kids in that kind of age range. And the idea of them, that's like such mom goals. Oh, are, you know, that your kid would see a lonely kid on the playground and offer that invitation, and even just like the awareness of that. That's really sweet. And what was, did that, how, what was the impact that that had on you?
1: It was huge. I felt like they, I felt like um, the sun, like the clouds parted, oh. <laughs> like sun shone down upon us. And I actually, when I wrote my book, I called one of the women <gasps> I know through Facebook and I called her. And I said, do you mind if I use your name and I want to send you this chapter? And she's like, I have no idea what you're talking about. She, you know, we're not very close. I kind of know her through Facebook and she's a professor now. And she, you know, I sent this to her and she wrote back and she said, I didn't even remember that. And I had no idea the impact it made. And it still makes me want to cry thinking about it. So that was a huge, huge moment for me, um, And that was when I started to learn how to be a friend and make friends, which I think is critical.
0: That's really sweet. I love, this is just such a powerful reminder. And honestly, I feel like this is such a reoccurring theme on this show is folks having the trajectory of their life changed by one person doing like a relatively – Unremarkable thing. Like, we're not talking about CNN hero, like Nobel Peace Prize winning work. This, like, relatively unremarkable thing done with thought and care and intention that is so small, the person doing it oftentimes doesn't even recall it or remember it because that's how quote unquote insignificant it is. And yet, it can literally change the course of someone's trajectory and life. And we have heard this story. In you know different ways and capacities over and over and over again, and I am yeah. always so inspired by that. I'm so inspired. And I'm so encouraged because I feel like we live in a culture that kind of tells us, "Hey, in order to make a difference or to make an impact in the world, it just it has to be big and it has to be extraordinary and it has to be novel." And yet, the stories that I actually hear oftentimes are more, hey, here's how this seemingly insignificant act of kindness or intentionality or courage actually really made a lifelong impact. And then, of course, you've gone on to make this extraordinary impact in other people's lives. So it's like to be able to tie that back to that little girl on the playground. I, I have this belief. It's very woohoo. But I have this belief that in the afterlife, you know that scene in um, – are you a Batman person? Do you ever watch I love Batman? Batman? Okay, okay. Yeah. So you know like when you when when Alfred's in the basement and there's just you can see all of like Gotham City and there's all these cameras and all this information. I like have this belief that in the afterlife it's going to be a version of that where we get to like see our life. But then it's just like this massive like screen of stories that like we have no idea that it's like, oh, remember that moment back in 1989 or remember that time in 2019? You probably don't remember it, but I'm going to show you literally the impact that this had. And then this happened over here and then this happened over there. And then look at this story that unfolded and we'll get to like see this like giant web of kind of how we're
1: connected and how we walked one another home. I I cannot agree with you more. I think that, you know, people often ask me well you had this i mean because i also had a head injury that like almost can stop my ability from uh, i almost was not able to communicate after it and i couldn't remember anything i was hit in the head with the car um i when i was on my bike um in 2013 and you know i had to rebuild my communication brick by brick and um people often ask me well, how did you overcome? How did one woman overcome so much? And I always say, my story is not about one woman overcoming so much. My story is about how you can change the life of one person. Mm -hmm. That's what it's really about. And I had so many women and men, Mm -hmm. um, but a lot of mother figures that my father pulled into my life Mm
0: -hmm. along the way
1: who kind of reached out their hand and said like, this one will not fall. Oh. And I was so lucky. It
0: how are we so crying? Lucky. We're only like five minutes into this podcast <laughs> and that's the second time I've cried. I know. It makes me cry. Oh, that's beautiful. That is really beautiful. So will you tell me, I'm really intrigued um, about your discovery of theater. Will you tell us about how this kind of hobby or art form, how you discovered it and the impact that it had on you early on?
1: Yeah, well, you know, I was a little kid who because of my childhood, I spent a lot of time in my imagination
0: Yeah.
1: because in my imagination, I could go anywhere. I could be anyone I wanted to be. I didn't have to be where I was. Yeah. I could choose my own reality. And what I really wanted to be more than anything was Lois Lane. <laughs>
0: okay i see that you got some lois lane vibes i like it
1: (laughs) because she was so pretty and superman was in love with her so i wanted to be her um but eventually i began to question whether that was a solid and stable life strategy (laughs) But, um, (laughs) but um but I loved make-believe. I just loved it and I loved to sing. I mean, I took voice lessons for maybe seven years mm. and I, I never felt like I was good at anything. You know, I, I I was pulled in and out of school because of my mother. I was behind. I could read late. I mean, I remember back in the day when, I've never told this story before, but back in the day, it was not so kind and gentle if you had learning disabilities. And yeah. I want to say to yeah. every parent listening- if you have a child who's dyslexic, they can write a best-selling book. Mm, so I just so got to put that out there. So um, but they would literally get on the loudspeaker and say, Eliza Van Court to the resource room for math. Oh my, like, gosh. And they, oh my and gosh. You had to get up and walk the walk of shame walk down to walk the of basement and then to the resource room for reading. So I, I really, it was a hard time. I wasn't very yeah. good at school. I thought I was stupid. Yeah. And I realized I could sing and I could act really well. And I started to have people say, you're good at a thing. And I, mm. I really believe that when your kids are younger, finding what they're good at, even if it's not the thing that you value, or even if yeah. it's not something that society thinks will make them money, it doesn't matter. As long as they know they're good at one thing, that is what's important. They may go into that thing, they may go into something else, but it allows them to feel like they have value. And I think yeah. it's so important. So for me, that was just transformative. And I met a lot of other kids and I just started to kind of feel like I could speak my mind a little bit more. I still didn't really speak up for myself, but I was very vocal about things like politics and fairness and Mm -hmm. things like that. And that was a Mm -hmm. big first step to being vocal about my own self, you know, my own beliefs. I
0: also wonder if there was a part of you that when you were playing another, when you were playing a part, if it almost allowed you to kind of experiment, it was, it's like a really safe container for taking up space because you're not taking up space for you you're taking up space on behalf of this other character or part that you're playing and I think that that can be a really powerful it's like training wheels for how to take up space for for yourself that I mean you're literally play acting uh for kind of a rough draft but then that becomes more natural and and more comfortable
1: Absolutely. And I was always cast as like the loud, out there person who had all these opinions. And I didn't feel that way. Totally. Yeah. (laughs) But it was really fun to pretend to kind of inhabit that. And I actually ended up becoming, even though I went to school for political science, and um, actually spent an hour, uh, an hour, a year at law school and decided I didn't want to do it, but um, I I ended up uh, becoming an actor and then having my own acting studio for over twenty years. So oh wow, okay. So you really life.
0: you really followed the trail. You really leaned into that and and cultivated a love for that. I love that. So will you tell us a little bit more about? Okay, so you you kind of did the law thing, and then you went formally into theater. Just will you just tell us a little bit about that journey of opening up your own studio and then why you did it. And then why you eventually decided to to go in a different direction.
1: Well, um, you know, I really liked law school. I found it really interesting. Um, but I wasn't a fan of the adversarial system. I'd always loved. So I took a leave of absence from NYU Law School and I never went back. <laughs> um, and I started doing this technique called the Meisner Technique, which is all about observing the minutia of human behavior okay. and understanding your own emotional life. And I found it really fascinating because I had worked at the Democratic Congressional Campaign Committee, and it was so interesting for me to watch how the same politician could – different politicians could say the same words Mm -hmm. and had a completely different response. Yeah. Depending on, you know, what what they – if they were pretty, if they were old or young where they came from, did they have an accent, what race they were. So to me, it was sort of the confluence of two things I found really interesting. Um, So I ended up going to Boston and um, my ex-husband was going to Harvard uh, Medical School. And I had been acting in New York and I, this is back in the day, you know, the stone ages when we had like phone books and operators. Yeah.
0: Yeah. Those (laughs) days. Lois
1: Lane's days. (laughs) Yeah, exactly. And so I called up the operator and I said, connect me to anyone under actors and she said, well, we have an actor's workshop of Boston. And I was like, great, that's the place. And I, an- the guy answered and I said, listen, I don't know anything about auditioning in Boston. And I just moved from New York. I just did a two-year Meisner program. And I did a show at the Clerman He said, wait, did you do a two-year Meisner program? And I said, yeah. And he said, our Meisner instructor, just quit. can you come in for an interview?
0: Oh, my gosh. <laughs> that is, that's pretty wild. I love the, like literal kind of open up the phone book, pick a name, call it. To me that, and you know, the fact that it happened the first time that you called to be like Mm -hmm. a fruitful path to walk down, I would say is pretty extraordinary and rare. But what I love about it is like the lack of overthinking. I think so often we just get so stuck with like, what is the next step? How do I break into this? How do I start? And we think, and we think, and we think, and we pontificate, and we research, and we talk about doing the thing. And the the more we stay in that place, I think the heavier and bigger and more fearful we become, because it's like, that's actually not how we learn and grow and evolve. We actually do all of that by just trying and doing it. And so Just the kind of like rip the Band-Aid off, hop off the high dive without actually, you know, so the longer you stand at the high dive, the more freaked out you're going to get. And so almost like the impulsivity of just like, yep, make a call. If it works, great. If it doesn't, I'll call the operator back. I think it's like a really (laughs) beautiful example of like, just take a step. It might be in the wrong direction, like big whoop. But it's one step in any direction is better than staying still and frozen in total paralysis or fear.
1: I mentor so many people because I've had hundreds of people go through my acting studio, uh, you know, hundreds and hundreds and, you know, thousands. And I, what I always tell people, cause they're like, well, I'm waiting for the right time to start getting my reel together or my resume or to go out and start auditioning or this or that. And I always say, or even to do a different career to, you know, leave acting and go to law school, which is my dream or whatever it is. And I always say to people, no one's going to come down and say to you from on high, okay, you did it. Every ducks Mm -hmm. in a row, everything is Mm -hmm. perfectly aligned. And so now if you do this thing, you're gonna definitely succeed. That's never happening. You will never be ready for anything that you try that is a little bit ambitious because ambition, it takes risk and you're never gonna be ready. So you just gotta do it. You just have to do it and, and you will fall and you will fail. And that is the most beautiful thing in the world because the only way you grow is by falling on your face as far as I'm concerned.
0: <laughs> I love it. I love it. So tell me about the moment where you were like, okay, I was a student of this and now all of a sudden I'm getting asked to be a teacher. There is a moment where we enter into what we call stage two of the learning journey, which is conscious incompetence, where you're like, oh, there's this gap between like, yeah, I learned the thing. I've never taught the thing before. Where were? was it an easy yes for you? Did you battle through kind of imposter syndrome or wondering if you were actually qualified? Will you just kind of walk us through that, that transitional moment in your story?
1: Well, I've had a lot of imposter syndrome in my life. This was not one of them because when I was learning the Meisner technique, I was watching my teacher and I was thinking, there's a better way to do this. Ah, it, it doesn't okay. have to yeah. be so traumatic for people. You know, okay. you can make people learn with joy. And he mm. did it with a lot of shame and fear.
0: I mean, mm. I love it. God, God
1: bless you, Phil Gushy. You changed my life. But there was a, it was old school, you know? Yeah. yeah. So, um, yeah, I mean, I in my head, when the guy asked me, um, Frank, I said, in my head, I went, okay. I mean, this is so embarrassing to admit, but I said, Okay, fine. You know, acting is, I mean, teaching is for people who can't act. So I don't really want to do this. And <laughs> I, you know, I'm just gonna go in for a couple weeks and and like I'll do it for a semester because I need the money and we're not gonna be yeah. in Boston forever. So whatever. And I went in with this attitude of like, you know, this is a dumb gig, but I might as well do it because I don't know how to get an acting role yet. Yeah. And I did it for a week and I was like, oh. This is why I'm here. Oh wow. This is my calling. And wow. instantly a hu the biggest class at the studio. That um, is so
0: cool. I love that. I love that willingness also to be surprised, you know, instead of being like, this is dumb. This isn't my path. Like I'm not gonna do it. I'll opt out. I don't know. I think there's something really sweet about the like, okay, I'll do it. But then you were open and humble enough to go like, okay, I'll eat that cake that said that this wasn't the path and like willing to be surprised by yourself a little bit with how much you loved it and how much it brought you to life.
1: Yeah. Despite everything I'm doing now and the success of my book and my speaking career, I know eventually I'm going to also integrate acting, teaching back into my life because it just brings me such joy. Okay. And so then
0: tell us about going from being a teacher at somebody else's studio to owning an acting studio.
1: No one's ever asked me these questions. This is fun. (laughs) Um.
0: (laughs) That's literally one of my main goals is um, make this interesting for my guest. So I'm so happy to hear you say that.
1: Yeah. Yeah. So we went back to my hometown of Ithaca, New York. um, And I was, um, I was like, I'm gonna start my own acting studio. And I asked the guy, Frank, if I could call it the Actors Workshop of Ithaca, because I love the name. And he said, sure, what do I care? You're in Ithaca. (laughs) And so everyone told me, everyone told me, you are trying to take an acting technique for professional actors and bring it into a town where you expect people to spend three hours twice a week for an entire five semester program in a town where there is no market for people Mm -hmm. to make money as an actor. You're crazy. Yeah. Yeah. And whenever there's a Maya Angelou, who is one of my probably is my greatest hero says, want me to do something? Tell me I can't do it. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. (laughs) I'm very oppositional. So I, in my head I was like, well now I'm doing it. Um, And I blanketed the town. I mean, I, the, the, the way that I got my first article is there was a local newspaper, because back then we actually had a big building for the local newspaper, mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. and I walked to the woman. I knew they were going to not let me talk to anyone, because I had no story. I walked in with a book, and a huge, thick, thick, thick book that I put in my book bag. It was probably like 10 Moby Dicks, and I said, you know, I, I am an acting teacher from Boston. I taught. I did works and I worked in New York City and I'm opening an acting class and I am bringing New York City quality acting coaching to Ithaca and you should do a story about me and she said she said hold on n- let me just call and then she clearly doesn't even call anyone and said <laughs> oh I'm sorry no one's available right now and I said oh that's fine I brought a book <laughs> And I pulled out my gigantic book and sat there and smiled at her as I looked at this book that was like thousands of pages long. And she looked at me and just watched me and I kept waving and smiling. I was like, I'll wait all day. And eventually this guy came down. She, she like looks at me and she's like, ah, oh, forget it. And she called someone and they went down and I pitched them hard and they did a story on me. And I blasted that story all over and I put posters everywhere. And I got my first class and I put so much money into it. I remember the only, I made, I think $350 off of that first class, even though I filled my class and I bought myself a pair of leather pants.
0: (laughs) Yes. I love that one. I love that hustle and pluck of just like, Hey, I'm here. I mean, honestly, I feel like so much of success is basically just like a war of attrition. Like who's who can just wait it out the longest and just take take the most, you know, figurative beatings, rejections, side eyes, and whoever's left standing is oftentimes the one who ends up being successful. Um, I just love that. I think I that's say awesome. the same thing
1: to people all the time. It's a war of attrition.
0: Yeah, that's, that's so good.
1: I couldn't agree with you more. Yeah, I mean, I it's also hard. love
0: that you. This is something I'm really bad at, but I love that you treated yourself to a pair of leather pants. Like, I think it's <laughs> so important. We so underestimate the importance of like really marking and celebrating these victories. In um, this idea, it's it's something that I'm really, I have been trying to cultivate in myself. Of kind of, there's a verse in scripture that says, "Do not despise small beginnings," and it's one of my nice. favorite. Uh, pieces to hold on to because it's such a reminder to me that it's like actually the only way to make a big impact in the long term is if you are willing to like not despise the small wins in the victories and to stop and to see them and to celebrate. And I think treating yourself, I was actually just on a um, coaching call and there was a woman who she's just really struggling with kind of taking action towards her goal. And one of the things that we did is we decided as a group, like here's what you're going to do. And we assigned a treat to it and then you're going to treat yourself um, and you're going to celebrate it. And we're all going to celebrate with you when you do. It's not revolutionary. It's not going to, ch- this single action isn't going to change the game for you, but it might unlock your momentum towards the next step, but we're gonna we're gonna assign a celebratory treat to it. Um, so I love that you did that. Do you still have the leather pants? Oh yeah, you do. Oh, yeah. Okay, so also they were a good
1: purchase. <laughs> I totally they do. La-
0: okay, that's amazing. I, I love totally that.
1: do. Yeah, no. Um, there's a great saying that Greg Lamont, a famous cyclist, my son was a very serious rider, and um, the the saying is, "It never gets easier. You just go faster." Mm, and I think that because Mm. of that it feels like you're not going anywhere and so if you don't sit there and be like wow I'm going faster then it feels kind of demoralizing because it doesn't get easier and so for me I have a little rule every time I do a speaking gig which is quite often it's how I make my money how I make my living um is I always buy myself a set of rings wherever okay. I go, because yeah. that way I can remember the place. Like I don't want to do that. I'm going to like, you know, Nashville, it's the greatest with like a little, yeah. you know, yeah. Yeah. but I can look at that and go, Oh, I had fun. It. I love speaking every time I meet amazing people. And I, and I, basically it's a way of kind of rewarding myself for another thing and remembering the experience. It's just my little treat. I think it's so I important. I love
0: that. I love that. I'm, I might need to adopt a, a, similar habit. Yes, I'm really wearing
1: beautiful. one right now.
0: <laughs> I love it. That's so cool. Okay. So how did you know you loved it? Your heart was on fire. You built the studio. One of the topics that we love to talk on the show about, because I think it's one that confounds a lot of people and that we almost all will have a moment in our life where we have to ask ourselves, when is it time to quit? When is it time mm-hmm. to walk away or to close one chapter to open up the next chapter? So will you tell us a little bit about that process for you?
1: Well, what happened was I had been doing a lot of communication work on the side. Um, And because of my background in political science and the performing arts, I have a perspective on how people can move their bodies in space, use their words, use their voices in a way that most people just don't have because they haven't spent 20 years observing human behavior yeah. the way that yeah. I have. Yeah. And so my business was kind of taking off. It was taking a lot of my time. I was having to miss class because I was giving talks and workshops. And so, I, I, but I still loved it. Um, and then one of my favorite students, Prachi. Um, who is like he's, she's my niece? Graduated. Um, she was also my neighbor, and so um, and I thought, wow, you know, when am I going to actually be done with this? I kind of was feeling mm. like I was burning out, and then mm. the pandemic happened. Okay, yeah. And a lot of acting uh, teachers decided to do everything online, and I felt it was really for me unethical with the technique I teach to do it online mm. because you just can't do what you do. In- so yeah. I decided to temporarily sh- temporarily shut it down. And I was really happy. I realized, oh, mm. I really needed this. I was starting to mm. burn out. And mm. I was also launching my book, which was okay. a ten hundred billion full time job. So much work. I everybody warned me. And I was like, what can be so hard about it? And then I was like, oh, oh, yeah. So, um, So that happened. Although now I really am thinking that eventually – I'm going to have to integrate that back into Mm. my life. I think Mm. I'm just going to do it on a different scale because I have the infrastructure now to support it in a way that I didn't before. So I don't have to do all the other stuff. I can just show up to class, which for me is like breathing.
0: Yeah, I love that. I love the kind of philosophy. I think so often as we think about our vocations, and certainly there are some vocations where probably this rings truer than others. There can, but sometimes we put a false sense of kind of like this dichotomy of like it's I'm either it's all in on doing this. And if I don't do this, then I have to kill it all and I have to shut it down and everything dies. And then I have to create totally from scratch. And it becomes very dramatic. It's like very dramatic. And so often what I've found and what I've learned even from folks on this show is that building a beautiful vocational life oftentimes is kind of like I'm doing this and then I'm doing this. And then I actually get to a stage where I'm kind of like looking backwards and picking out some certain pieces and like threads and going like, okay, I I loved the thread of this, but then this wasn't actually working out for me. And then this was really challenging and exciting for me over here. And getting to a stage in your vocation or career where it actually almost becomes like you get to start weaving a tapestry out of all of these past experiences and learnings and and value adds that you've learned to create or skill sets that you've developed And it a little bit sounds like that's kind of the stage that you're entering into the the weaving of the
1: tapestry stage. Absolutely. I mean, I'm I'm a real nerd. I really I'm into logical fallacies. It's actually something I work on with my <laughs> workshops and and the coaching I still do. And um, you know, I think that there's this fallacious argument, really, which is the false dichotomy, which is like it's either this or it's this. Mm-hmm. And we're really taught that so much of the mm-hmm. time. You can't mm-hmm. do both. Pick a side. And mm-hmm. I think mm-hmm. that's because we're in a hyper um, success oriented Mm -hmm. society, especially with our children, you know, we're pushing them to want to make a decision and go do a thing and make plans. And, you know, life is unplannable. Nothing Mm -hmm. ever turns out the way you think it's going to. And if you, if you commit to this plan or nothing, you're going to be very disappointed when life knocks you on your butt, you know? And so for me, um, I don't think I need to, you know, have that false dichotomy, I can say, okay, well, eventually I'm going to integrate this back in my life. It may not look like it looked before, yeah. but that doesn't mean it can't be a part of my life. Mm, that's beautiful.
0: Eliza, will you tell us about a moment in your story as you've kind of evolved from these different vocations, but you know, there's obviously been like a very strong thread of commonality throughout it. Will you tell us about a moment in the story that you would define as a pluck up, a mistake, yeah a wrong turn, a wrong call, a hard rejection, a moment in your story, um, yeah, that you look back on and go like, ooh, that was tough.
1: Yeah, it's so funny. No one's ever asked me that before. I mean, first of all, I've done so many mistakes. (laughs) (laughs) It's hard to narrow them. Um, But uh, I, I think the worst thing in my mind, the thing that really still makes me shudder, even though I've apologized to the person, is early, early, early on, um, in my teaching career, you know, my, in this town that I'm in, my, my acting school is, it's probably the, well, it was the biggest acting school, I would say, of studios in central New York. People would travel an hour and a half, you know, three hours round trip to study with us, and so I was directing a play, and one of my, my, one of my mentees was directing a play, and, um, I, they were really not doing the job I wanted them to. And at that point in my life, I really hadn't stepped into my center in a way that I have now. Mm -hmm. It took me a long time to really realize it's okay if people aren't happy with me, it's okay if I, Mm. you know, direct communication is better. So I went behind their back and Mm. I did a, it sounds so small. I did a rehearsal Mm. um, and without their permission behind their back, which is in theater, like a gigantic, horrific violation. And things sort of devolved from there and they ended Mm. up leaving my life. And I went through a lot of changes and years later, I took them out to lunch and I mm. said, You know, I'm not ever expecting you to forgive me for everything that happened, yeah. but I want you to know I was your mentor and that was my fault. And mm. I'm so sorry. And it still kills me to this day that, you know, my fear of saying, you know, I don't know if you're doing the best job, I need to come in and I need to do this rehearsal. And then, you know, all of the things that sort of devolved where I was not doing direct communication with her, which ended up having the whole thing fall apart. She was probably one of the most brilliant, gifted mentees I've ever had. And I am in touch Mm. with almost all my mentees. And this person I lost in my life because of my own mistake. And, you know, it still kind of haunts me. It still haunts me. But it also was an incredible lesson because now my, the premium I put on direct communication is so extreme. And you know, the guy I'm dating right now is, I mean, we joke. I think he says I'm allowed to say this. I think he's on the autism scale. He thinks he's not. We joke about it, but he is the most direct communicator you will ever meet in your actual life. And it's wonder, I couldn't have ever dated him before. I would have been freaked out by it. And Uh, now it's such a blessing. Such a blessing because I never worry about where he stands. And so for me, this was really the realization that people pleasing was dangerous and toxic and I had to do it differently.
0: Wow. Thank you so much for sharing that. I think, you know, my belief is that relationships and right relationships are one of the most fundamental parts of building a beautiful life. And so I think broken mistakes and pluck ups that break relationships can be the most painful. And those are the ones I know for me, it's like I have gotten over, I would say pretty much every mistake I've ever made, which has been a lot, but the ones that can still make me go, ooh, they all come back to people. Like they all come back to people. And so I'm just really grateful that you would be vulnerable and courageous enough to just to share something with us that, didn't really have a happy ending you know it's like really easy to be like I made this mistake but then it turned out actually amazing and I'm so glad it really happened and instead to sit in that with us of going actually sometimes we make mistakes and we live the rest of our lives with the consequences of those mistakes and that doesn't mean you know that forgiveness isn't available and that doesn't mean that we can heal from that and that it has to like destroy us either but to almost like learn this sense of like to live I you know I I imagine like living in a home with this thing that it's like you don't get to make all the decisions you're not going to keep me awake at night but like I'm going to have to learn to just like live with you as a piece of furniture in my home that exists and I think one of the things that's really beautiful even about your retelling of that pluck up is there was an immense gift in it for you ultimately like it really it really was just this visceral manifestation of the importance of direct communication and and encourage and clarity. But that gift would not have been available to you if you would have done what a lot of people do when there's relational fissure, which is get super defensive and figure out a story that makes it kind of the other person's fault and tell yourself a story about how she was overreacting or too sensitive or such a diva or, you know, whatever it is that you could have said of like, it wasn't that big of a deal and belittling that. And had you gone that path, it probably momentarily in the short run would have felt way better, right? It feels so much better to be able to point the blame at somebody else and to say like, well, like, okay, it wasn't great of me, but really they're the ones that are making it a big deal. And the gift is only available to us when we have the courage to go like, oh, no, that was not my finest and I was in the wrong and to just like humbly seek reconciliation in that even though it didn't lead to a right relationship or, you know, restoration of trust, but it did enable you to kind of unlock the gift that was available to you in that of like this lifelong visceral thing that you will carry with you as a reminder of the importance of, um, courageous and clear communication, even when it's really hard in the short term.
1: Yeah. And I think that was the primary gift. I think the secondary gift was that sometimes you can apologize to someone without expecting them to forgive you, but it's still important to do it. And one thing she said to me when I took her out to lunch is, you know, she cried and she said, thank you. That really means a lot to me. And it was like, she, when somebody's not treating you well, you can really start to feel like it's you and you want nothing more than the person to say, no, no, it's my bad. I'm sorry. I messed up. This was on me, especially if you're in the position of power, which I was. And for me, knowing that I'd freed her from any question, Mm. you know, as to whose fault Mm -hmm. it was, Mm -hmm. it, I'm, I'm. That's the other thing is like, if you mess up, I think we're in a culture right now where if you mess up, there's a fear of being, you know, canceled or shamed or whatever. And so everybody doesn't want to admit when they messed up to me, I think, you know, being able to look at someone and say, I'm sorry, that was me. I, 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 you know, I wish I could fix this. I can't, but I want you to know it was me. You're not crazy. And, and I I think you're wonderful. I, I think for me, That was huge. And it also made me realize, like, for some people in my life, I never got that. And I went, oh, that's why I still feel unsettled about that. Because they never said that to me.
0: That was a really beautiful... Reflection of the gift. even, And I love your point about like going into trying to write a relationship with the expectation that it may never be restored, right? That you can reconcile, but that that may mean like that the trust is never restored. You may be somebody that she never chooses to kind of be in that relationship with again or has that level of trust in and to go in with that expectation of like, you don't get to apologize and just demand that everything goes back to the way it is like a real, there's a real vulnerability and humility and being really open-handed of like, I'm going to go in without expectations of what the result of this kind of act of reconciliation is, but also just like, I don't know the way that you phrased that was so beautiful because it was, it is such a gift and it's such an offering. That we can give to people who we've wronged, but in a way that is really humble and vulnerable versus like self-righteous, you know, to just say, I want to remove any confusion that you might have or any story about yourself that you might be telling that isn't true that I participated in. I want to, I want to make that right. And I want to do that regardless of um, how that ultimately impacts me in the long run. Although I also believe it does impact us, you know, like that is a, that it impacts our own humanity, regardless of how it impacts the other person. I just read this story that um, I shared in another community that I'm a part of that just, I've heard it, you know, when you hear those stories, probably heard this story like five times, but there was something about it when I read it last week that just like, it just really impacted me in a new way. And it's I mean, maybe you've heard it or maybe our listeners have heard it. It's a story about this guy who during the Vietnam War was protesting the war and he would stand outside the White House every night with a single candle. And the reporter who approached him and said, do you really think that this is going to do anything to change them or change the situation? And he looked at the reporter and he said, oh, no, this isn't about changing them. This is my intention so that they don't change me. Like this is me holding on to my own humanity and my own sense of hope. Um, for justice and for peace it's not about changing other people it's actually about these small acts that like help us hold on to our own humanity and I think the act of reconciliation is one of those that it is like our hope is that it's a gift and offering for the other and in the process I think it's a gift and offering to ourselves to hang on to our own sense of kind of humanity and softness Um, and I totally agree with you that our culture right now it's like such a fine line, right? It's like there's so much that's happening in our culture around accountability that I'm so grateful for. Of like, yes, you can't do whatever you want with impunity. Like that we we are moving in a there is a new era yep. and we will hold people accountable. Right. And how do we do that? How do we hold accountability and justice as the high value that it should be while also, cultivating hearts and spirits, and it's part of, I think, what I'm trying to do on this podcast. Of, and we're all going to make mistakes, and there is like the only way that we actually learn from our mistakes is if we're allowed to call them what they were, which was a mistake, which was a pluck up, which was a like I could have done better. Because without that acknowledgement, um, all of the gifts, whether that's the gifts that's available to the people that we've hurt or the gifts that are available to us, um, stay buried. Yeah, so.
1: I can't agree with you more. And I think the interesting thing about what you just said is like, <clears throat> if you go into an apology, not with the idea that the apology is about your forg- them forgiving mm-hmm. you. Mm-hmm. It, it's not about you. The apology is about your gift of telling them their reality is real mm-hmm. and you're sorry. Mm-hmm. It doesn't just benefit them if you go in with that orientation It helps you become, I think, a more someone who stays in your integrity, which is like one of, for me, one of the most important things you can do as a human being.
0: Yeah. I also say all of that being like, maybe I'm so interested and obsessed with this conversation because I'm just particularly bad at it. (laughs) 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 Like, I feel like I want to be very clear that I am no guru or Buddha. Like my level of defensiveness when somebody says, I mean, I feel it in my actual body, my instinct to be like, nope, and here's the 19 reasons why you're wrong and I was in the right is just like, I will just say, this isn't something I feel especially naturally gifted in, which might be why. I'm so interested in intentional about cultivating that in myself um, because it's something you have to practice. And it isn't. It just naturally, oh, it's <laughs> for awful. some people, it feels bad. For other people, it feels like death. And I happen to be on the part of the spectrum where it kind
1: of can feel like death. <laughs> totally. totally. Especially, I think, if you grew up in a family, and I don't know if you did or not, but if you, if you grew up in a family or you experienced in your life someone telling you you were wrong a lot. Yeah. You're bad, and you're wrong, and you're bad, and there's shame. You, the, the the instinct, of course, is you. An adult is like, no, I'm not wrong, and I'm not bad, because if I'm wrong, then I'm bad. Yes. You know, and and yes. like p- divesting those things from each other and saying I can be wrong and not be bad. We're all wrong mm-hmm. once in a while. Is the hardest thing in the world, and I struggle with it all the time.
0: Yeah, that is one of my big things that I am constantly telling my children. We talk about mistakes a lot in our home very intentionally but that we all make mistakes but also you can do a bad thing and that doesn't make you a bad person you Absolutely. can make it last night at the dinner table one of my kids did something and one is prone to never thinking he has made mistakes and that he is always right and the other is a little bit more prone to shame and so he did something and just said to himself like oh I'm so dumb oh, like, no copy. that thing that you did was a little bit dumb but you are not dumb <laughs> you know like that was a mistake that you made and that is entirely separate from you know, who you are and who you are becoming. But whoo, it starts young. It really, really does. It starts young. So now I've got myself a question of going, huh, where uh, I'm, I'm asking myself and I won't take up our airspace here in answering it. But what I'm leaving with is wanting to kind of do some introspection and actually dive into like, oh, what is the narrative that I'm holding on to or that I received as a child that, um, puts me in that posture so quickly of needing Mm -hmm. to defend myself Mm -hmm. or to be right Um, because I know it's there and I've spent a lot of time trying to correct it but not as much time actually like diving one step deeper into the story that I'm telling myself so this is why I did a whole section in my book
1: this is why I did a whole section in my book on anti-mentors Because I think they they, are—they—they follow us everywhere we go. We—we had them when we were sixteen, and we're fifty-two, and we're still trying to quiet those voices. You know, I'm—you know—so I mean, for me, I have adult children, and I—I still, you know, hope. God, I hope I wasn't an anti-mentor. Then I realized I oh, probably was a little at times, but mostly I was not, you know, but it's so hard. I mean, everybody has those people in there. So many people do have anti-mentors in their lives and those, you know, it can just be so painful. And, you know, that those narratives, the stories that they tell us become the stories that we write if we're not careful, you know?
0: Yeah. Oh, so good. Well, Eliza, I enjoyed this conversation so much. Where can people find
1: more of you? Well, they can definitely get my book, A Woman's Guide to Claiming Space, anywhere books are sold. Um, <laughs> and they can also go to my website, which is elizavancourt.com, uh, V-A-N-C-O-R-T. Um, and I'm also on all all of the socials, all the social media. So yeah, definitely.
0: Thank you for being on the show. Thank you for sharing with our community. Thank you for the work that you are doing in the world. And we're super grateful for you.
1: Thank you so much for having me. This was one of my favorite podcast conversations I've had in quite a while.
0: (laughs) Yay! Oh, that's so fun. Likewise. Thanks so much. All right. Well, thank you so much for being here for this episode and for being in the plucking up community just in general. Y'all, this truly is one of my favorite things that I get to do meeting extraordinary people and cultivating conversation that I hope serves you by helping to inspire you, encourage you, maybe even at times challenge you. But most of all, I hope as you listen to these episodes and you are here in this community, you just feel a little bit less alone as you go out and do the meaningful, powerful, heartbreaking, heartwarming, life-changing, magical work of building a life of purpose and passion and impact. I truly am so grateful that you are here. We are at the end of season seven. I cannot believe we've had seven seasons of the Plucking Up podcast, and we're going to be taking a little bit of a break. Part of that break, transparently, is going to be to just slow down a little bit in my life. As I end the year, I am intentionally just creating some space for myself, for some dreaming, for my family, for my kids to be really present during this holiday season. And also, we are going to be doing some dreaming, some scheming, and some planning for season eight of the Plucking Up podcast. I am really excited about what's coming down the pipeline not going to tell you what it is, but I'm going to tell you that it will be a true outpouring of my heart and my hopes, and I hope that it serves you. In the meantime, we thought it would be really fun to kind of go back through the archives of the last seven seasons of the Pucking Up podcast and play some of the listener favorite episodes that we've done. So if you have been around since the beginning, I hope this feels nostalgic and fun to you and that maybe you learn something or are inspired or encouraged or challenged in a new way when you listen to these episodes. And if you are new to our community, well, then these episodes are going to be new to you. Luckily, I feel like our topic and conversations of building lives of purpose and passion and impact and dealing with our own mistakes and rejections and harder seasons along the way are pretty timeless topics that we're probably not ever going to actually grow out of. And so I hope you enjoy listening to these episodes for the first time. Super grateful for you and look forward to seeing you in season eight. But until then, stay plucky.